0: For thousands of years, monarchies and empires ruled in and from the lands of Iran. Then in 1979, there was a revolution. It was not just an Iranian revolution. It was intended as an Islamic and a global revolution. Today, upheavals are again shaking Iran. On this week's episode, I sat down with FDD senior fellow Ruel Mark a former CIA officer, and senior Iran analyst Benham Ben Talablu to discuss and explore what these protests mean and where they could be leading. Join us on Foreign Policy. Either the US enforces some rules in the world, or there are Every no rules. President has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached
1: out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981
0: In what is normally about the least eventful time of year, that period between Christmas and New Year's, you're sitting at home, finally, Benham, getting a break, except you're on your computer, and suddenly you realize something's taken place in Iran that nobody anticipated or predicted. Tell me about what you saw and what you thought.
1: What I quickly realized by looking at even the open social media forums, Twitter in particular, uh, there was something happening in Iran, but not in the city that you would predict. There were protests initially over economic grievances in the holy city of Mashhad. That's where the shrine of Imam Reza is. He's one of the, he's one of the 12 Shiism's uh, saints or imams. Uh, it's a very religious city in Iran's northeast near the Turkmen border. Protests against the Rouhani government over rising prices of food staples, but quickly mushrooming across the country to almost over 60 cities uh, within a span of a week, taking three days to reach Tehran. And watching these protests, I listened to slogans like I've never heard before in the history of the Islamic Republic. People identified the regime in the country as the impediment to their daily life. As we're recording this, what do we think the situation is
0: uh, in Iran? And are there still protests breaking out? Are there protests continuing? Uh, I've heard that thousands have been arrested. I've heard maybe scores maybe not, have been killed. Do
1: we know? What, what do you, th- you think is going on? That's right, Cliff. The protests are continuing, despite efforts by the regime to paint what's happening on the ground now is, in Iran as a wave of counter-protests. As you know, the regime is encouraging pro-government protests. These are people who are on basically the dime of the Islamic Republic of Iran, people who philosophically agree or the few that philosophically agree. These are the people being broadcast on state television right now, and what Iran's government is doing is trying to drown out the voices that continue to be defined, that continue to be resolute, that that continue uh, to advance their quest for representative government in Iran. Protests occurring still in Tehran, in Zanjan, Hamadan, Loristan. The IRGC are selectively picking the cities that they wish to deploy to. Um, it remains to be seen exactly how they will crack down. What's the what's the measure of their uh, how do they measure the mettle of the protesters? Have they learned anything from Syria? But the facts on the ground uh, are still very fluid.
0: Yeah, well, the other inconvenient narrative that has been disrupted by this, it was predominantly the New York Times about a month or so ago, which was that Iranians were fully unified now around this regime and, in fact, had been pushed towards unity by their disgust with in opposition to President Trump. Um, that seems to I mean that we now know that there is not if, if we know anything, we know there's not unity in Iran at this
2: point. I think that's probably one of the more offensive uh, analysis that was done so, just because uh, anyone who's paid attention to the Islamic Republic is well aware of the substantial uh, dissidence that's in that that's been in that country for uh, at least since the death of the Supreme, of Ayatollah Khomeini in 1989. Um, in fact, much of the reform movement in the 1990s was premised on the, uh, the open discussion of all the problems inside of the Islamic Republic. of uh, the, it's, a, it's impossible to go back and look at that commentary and not realize that you had a very, very large slice of the population, which was a near open rebellion against uh, the ideals uh, of the Islamic Republic. And we have seen it over and over again. Uh, we, and I think what's important to note is that the, I mean, the regime has been prepared since the first major riot that occurred uh, in Tehran in 1989, which by the way was just a soccer riot. It it started out. They canceled a game, um, and it was of the Istiklal uh, football team. And the old name of the Istiklal football team was Taj, uh, which in Persian means the crown. And you know, all of a sudden, you had ten thousand young men uh, coming out of the stadium, uh, and they were uh, they were yelling, you know, Taj, Taj, Taj. Now that's not to suggest that those young men wanted to bring back the Shah, but it does strongly suggest that they wanted to needle, to say the least, uh, the regime. Um, and it was after those demonstrations that they you know, developed these mobile uh, anti-riot forces within the Basij. Uh, but that's just the beginning of a long line of protests and, 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 and demonstrations. Uh, that have occurred in Iran, and most of them don't have uh, a political inspiration. Most of them come about from what we would look at and describe as non-political, but they become rapidly political. Again, if you go back and you look at the demonstrations that led to the downfall of the Shah in 1978-1979, it took roughly a year for them to become explicitly revolutionary. Uh, if you go and look at 2009 to the demonstrations about the fraudulent presidential election in Iran, uh, those demonstrations initially started out as a protest against that fraud. Within a week, they were explicitly counter-revolutionary. That is, they were aimed at the downfall uh, of the faqih, the rule of, of, of uh, Khamenei. Uh, these demonstrations started out explicitly political. Uh, so it's, it's, it should have been obvious to people, and it is a little disconcerting that so many people in the West uh, express surprise uh, when, these, when this eruption occurred.
0: Well, one thing is, I, I think you'll agree, that we like to think that when something like this happens anywhere in the world, we have journalists who are there on the spot with their notebooks. They're getting the truth, and they're getting it out. And the fact of the matter is, in a country that is a police state, such as Iran, if you're a Western journalist, first, your access is severely limited. Second, if you contradict the prevailing narrative too aggressively, you know you can end up, if you're lucky, kicked out of the country. If you're not, you and perhaps your wife can end up incarcerated yeah. for a long time. And I, I am, I'm I sympathetic with that. What I dislike is that— very few in the media, the editors will say, understand that our reporting is compromised. They want to acknowledge that. They'll make believe that they're doing their job just as they would if this were in Washington or Jerusalem or Berlin. Yeah. Can I, can I just harp yeah, on that please. point
1: uh, very briefly? Uh, even when you've had reporters in Tehran doing more day-to-day reporting, uh, I think Jason Rezaian definitely comes to mind of The Washington Post. You know, I, I vociferously used to read his, his posts about chicken kebab and Persian cuisine and soccer in Iran and the, these little, you know, day-to-day issues that affect the lives of Iranians. And they even took him and they jailed him. And even talking about chicken kebab and his wife, and his wife exactly. Yeganeh. And, you know, that's not to say that there weren't other hard-hitting reporters. I know uh, one, one from Reuters in particular I've been in touch with. She's no longer reporting from Iran, uh, but still covers Iran. There are hard-hitting journalists, but their access, as you mentioned, is, is compromised. And when you stay on the ground in Iran, you, you, you do forfeit something did you
0: find that you could get
1: better information from social media at least until and
0: unless the government managed to cut it off which in many cases technically
1: really- yes but the long-standing issue with, with social media and the apps that Iranians use is of course uh, attribution and can you really verify when this when this was filmed was mm-hmm. it posted shortly thereafter uh, and is this the actual city they're claiming to be sometimes there had been uh, Photos from protests in 2009, relabeled as 2017. But for the large part, I think most of the stuff we've seen on social media has been trustworthy because it's Iranians trying to break out of the, quote-unquote, halal internet and share their story with the outside world.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you have a sense, well, the protests are about different things to different people, obviously, although you learn a lot from the various chants you see, and some of them are very clearly, we're, we're tired of an Islamic republic. We are tired of our money being sent to Lebanon, Syria, Syria. Latin America, Yemen, Gaza, et cetera. Um, but you've also, you've written about this quite recently. An, an Islamic republic, a theocracy. You ex- essentially theorized breeds secularism in, in in in
2: reaction more than even response. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I think the regime itself, or at least uh, individuals in the regime, have been aware of this for for some time. There was. Uh, the late uh, Ayatollah Mahtabi Kani, who was a very conservative uh, Ayatollah, uh, talked about this problem 30 years ago. That uh, if you know Islam is about everything, it's about nothing. If the all forms of dissent become uh, uh, somehow you know a war in, uh, against God's rule, uh, then you have no uh, opening for any type of healthy political disagreement. So the regime itself is no, knows that uh, uh, they have problems with the growing disinterest at minimum. And I'd, I think it's fair to say secularization of society. You see it in such things as the very uh, large drop-off of enrollments at seminaries. Uh, you would think in the Islamic Republic where the path to power and wealth is through the clergy. Uh, that you would have uh, more ambitious young men uh, who would go in to seminaries so they can come out the other end and join the gravy train, if you're going to look at that strictly in a mercenary way. Uh, yet that hasn't happened, and the, the seminaries are in serious trouble because uh, young men, particularly you've got to remember young men from traditional families, because that's where the seminaries have always gotten their, their students Uh, Aren't joining, that tells you something a lot. That the 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 religious, the traditional families in Iran really don't want their sons uh, to become mullahs anymore. And and I just want
0: to stress something as you said, because I don't think people quite recognize this. And that is the the idea of a of a Khomeinius revolution. The kind of revolution meant there would be from that day on a ruling class and the ruling class would be the religious class. There was no way you could be a supreme leader if you were not an ayatollah. Uh, There was no way you you could serve the regime as Ahmadinejad did if you were not specifically uh, a religious authority. But you can only rise so far and you had to still be very much Promoting the one religious, the, the religious r-
1: rulers and the religious party. Is that? Am I saying this correctly? That's right. Even as a as a layman, as a civilian, uh, or as even a military person, uh, there was a, a glass ceiling, if you will, glass to, to how far you could rise, because the apex of the political pyramid, Iran, is for the supreme leader. Uh, Ayatollah, the Ayatollah. You know, obviously, the one exception, of course, is Khamenei himself, because he was not an Ayatollah. He was a Hojatul Islam as a mid-ranking cleric. You know, a good comparison is a master's degree versus a Ph.D. And Mm. they basically gave him a Ph.D. overnight for this position. So politics Mm. always finds a way to insert itself. Men have a lust for power, ambition, does that
0: cause uh, anger and resentment in those who are serious religious scholars to see that through the political system he becomes the grand ayatollah right. and the supreme leader without really having the kind of learning there that have, others
1: have? There have long been murmurs that there are men in Qom who refuse to pray behind uh, Khamenei. And, and this, is, this is a huge a slight that a cleric can say to another cleric because— uh, clerics tend to be quite friendly to one another. They know they have the same vested interest. There's a very, very old, two, three hundred year old uh, saying among clerics they refer to each other as, I am the bottom of your feet, cafe payatam, because you can step on me and, and, and survive. But you know, to the point where a cleric will shun praying behind another cleric, that's, that's a huge insult. I haven't heard much of that since 2009 because the securitization of the seminary, mm-hmm. and I want to point to what uh, Ruel was saying about the drop off in clerical enrollment. This has, this has huge impacts because Iran is now sourcing people from Nigeria and other countries with Shiite minorities to come to its seminaries so that mm. it doesn't learn the quietest version of mm. Shia Islam, as I suppose by Najaf, an institution being co-opted by uh, Iran. It must learn the Khomeini's version. And if Iranians won't, won't do it, then by God, we're going to get Arabs and Africans and Asians and everyone
2: else to do it. I mean, mm-hmm. I might mention one thing on Ahmadinejad. I mean, he really was. Who the, was, again, the president the, the pre- elected the, in a... The, pre- the, the 2009 pres 2009 the president of like <laughs> the, the, the president of Iran before that he had been mayor of Tehran. Uh, it's I mean it's important to note on him. I mean he really was the first populist uh, successful politician in the Islamic Republic, and you knew his days were numbered when uh, he was in a tug of war uh, with the supreme leader and uh, you know, a, a journalist. Asked him, and he said, "Well, you know, the supreme leader is is against that," and to which he responded uh, with no hesitation, uh, "Well, that is just one man's opinion." Mm-hmm. Uh, when and
0: that's the and the, the supreme leader is God's representative on Earth, officially. Yes,
2: yes. and for someone like Ahmadinejad, who was a, a very religious man who had initially not shown that type of uh, hostility towards the clergy, to actually have developed that. Uh, while he was in public office and to express it so openly gave you an idea that within you know the many factions of the Islamic Republic that even uh, uh, Ahmadinejad who came from a lower class background uh, you had real dislike of the clerical supremacy in Iran told you a lot about the state of health for that system
1: not to drift too far away from the protest, but just on the dominion of God and and, and man on on this earth. There's no one who has done more for neo-Protestant, to to butcher and borrow a phrase, neo-Protestant Shiism in Iran than Ahmadinejad because of his attacks on the clerical class. And that's why he still remains a figure who is... You know I wouldn't necessarily use the word popular, but he is liked among some sectors of the Iranian population and, and that's one thing I fear in, in terms of a you know tomorrow a more democratic representative of Iran how will this one class of people look to elect their representatives?
0: and one just one last thing uh, point that, that, that you make in one of your articles. it's not just that they're not the young men are not going to the seminaries, but you say people are also not showing up from the, at the mosque
2: that's been a notable a uh, feature of uh, Iranian society now for for years. Uh, I mean, one has to say in the beginning that the uh, Shia are, have always been less officially observant than their Sunni <laughs> counterparts. There are interesting historical explanations for that. But still, uh, in Iran, uh, which according to r- the Revolutionary Guard Corps, has 57,000 Shiite mosques to have only 3,000 of those. Uh, to be open, and most of those aren't open all the time, they only open up uh, during the holy months, uh, is really, I think, a fairly damning statement on what the regime itself has done to the public practice of the faith. Let's
0: move to the uh, to, to the response to the, this upheaval from this administration. The White House, State Department, Congress, what were your impressions of that?
1: So far, in terms of the rhetorical support to the protesters in Iran, I think the administration has been spot on. I think they're cognizant of the forces of history and of this political zeitgeist that they don't want to repeat what happened in 2009, where there is a confluence or or a marriage of American strategy and American values or American interests and American ideals in Iran, which is to say supporting the people of Iran is good for the U.S. foreign policy and it's good for the U.S. moral force in the world. Uh, And so they have lent strong rhetorical support. You know, as an Iranian-American, for instance, I'm proud to say, yes, I agree with Nikki Haley's statements. Yes, I agree with what Mekhasa was saying. The president, the vice president, everybody has come out full-throated support for the Iranian people, and that's important. And they've calibrated this rhetorical support in a way that they're not driving events on the ground in Iran. They're not calling for the violent armed overthrow, but they're not pulling their punches because they need something like the Islamic Republic, which is what you saw in 2009. I think ultimately the primary actor here is the Iranian people and to keep the spotlight on the Iranian people and their plight and their struggle and their resolve. And that's, that's been the key. So on a rhetorical basis alone, they get an A. So when you move to policy, of course, it gets more complicated.
0: We'll get to, we'll get to that. Uh, I don't know if you want to add anything to that, but if not, talk about the European response, which was less full-throated, uh, less uh, robust.
2: Uh, the Europeans have not uh, shown... A great deal of, of valor here when I think when it comes to uh, defending the the protesters in Iran. Uh, I do expect the Europeans to, uh, if these protests continue to have uh, much more powerful reporting on the ground, there are more European journalists uh, in Iran than there are American uh, or those affiliated with American uh, press organizations. So I would expect to see... European press reporting on this issue actually be at odds uh, with uh, the statements that you see from uh, European leaders and from Brussels. Um, you know, the, the Europeans have, uh, they too, I mean, were much attached to this idea that Rouhani was this new wave of moderation and pragmatism and that he was locked in a struggle against the you know nasty forces of the supreme leader in the Revolutionary Guard Corps and uh, and to have protesters in Iran explicitly go after Rouhani, to go after the whole idea of the Islamic Republic, uh, is not what they you know, wanted to see. So uh, they, to say, put it politely, are in a process of assessment and perhaps adjustment. We'll have to see whether the Europeans can come up with sanctions as a historical rule uh... the EU has always been uncomfortable with human rights sanctions they're uncomfortable with sanctions in general uh... the europeans more than the americans uh... depend upon export uh... so there is uh... there there is no commercial appetite certainly to see any aggressive attitude that would involve sanctions and defense of democratic protesters in the country.
0: You know, the Europeans are not unsophisticated in these matters, so I kind of wonder what they mean when they talk about moderates. Would a moderate Comainist not want to pursue the Islamic revolution beyond Iran's borders, You'd want, they'd want to create Islamism in one country, to use a sort of play in a Trotsky or a Stalinist phrase, do they think that that's what it would mean to be moderate, that you you, you wouldn't be, be, go beyond the borders? I, I'm not sure what it mean, would mean to be a moderate Khomeinist.
2: I mean, I think the Europeans get excited over very simple things, that they can get excited, for example, when uh, Iranian uh, diplomats and senior Iranian officials you know will sit down and shake their hands and tell jokes um, I mean there have been times where Iranian officials won't even do that But the foreign minister... Yeah, yeah. Zarif is, is, is probably the most talented uh, diplomat that the Islamic Republic has fielded since the revolution uh, He spent 23 years I think in the United States uh, He's comfortable with Westerners uh, so, uh, he, and, and it's sad to say that uh, the effect that he had particularly on senior American officials, the extent to which they bonded with him, uh, does not uh, speak well for the, uh, uh, I, I think, for, for, for much of the Obama administration. They should have had a somewhat more jaundiced attitude towards him. I would say the Europeans were actually better in their assessment of Zarif than we were. Uh, but at the same time, I think you simply can't underestimate the desire the, to, to want to believe that there is some change. Because if there isn't, if the status quo stays, if, if you realize that the factions inside of Iran really don't mean all that much when it comes to their foreign policy or when it comes to oppressing uh, 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 you know, Iranian citizens who want uh, uh, more freedom— uh, then uh, European policy is pretty ugly.
0: One of the uh, the phrases was not for Gaza, not for Lebanon. I sacrificed my life only for Iran. And what interests me particularly about that phrase is that it's nationalistic. And Khomeiniist ideology slash theology is not meant to be nationalistic. The phrase from Khomeini is that patriotism is a form of paganism, because you, you're not meant to worship your country, you're not meant to love your country, you're meant to love only God. Um, can Now, at the same time, it's, it would not be unheard of for the regime to try to utilize nationalist feelings and harness them to their efforts, but there's a contradiction there if they do, no?
1: There's a clear contradiction there, and that wouldn't be the first paradox operating uh, at full mm. speed under the Islamic Republic um, definitely the Khomeini, Khomeini himself encouraged uh, you know, use of the term Iran a little bit in the Iran-Iraq war. But historically even that war was always called the sacred defense of, mm. uh, or, the, or the holy defense or the imposed war. You know, the, the name Iran wasn't even in uh, mm. the war. Uh, neither is the name Iran in the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. It's not the Iranian Revolutionary right. Guard Corps. It's the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. These forces are tasked with a mission, and that mission is inherently global and thus universal. And their message is, is, is not particular to the Iranian national context and the history of Iran. It's, it's, it's general. It's applicable to the history of colonial oppressed peoples, Muslim peoples that downtrodden and dispossessed. And they want to be, quote unquote, the vanguard of that revolution. So nationalism does intersect uh, with this governing ideology quite a bit, and it contradicts it quite a bit. Um, but I remember, you know, Ahmadinejad in 2011, after his falling out with the supreme leader, channeled this nationalism much like the Shah. He insisted on the term Persian Gulf. He wanted mm. again return to the glories of Persepolis. Ironic, given that one of the ayatollahs under the Islamic Republic, Khal Khali, almost demolished the ruins of Persepolis. Something that, you know, would have been a real crime against humanity. Um, to bring it more into the context of these protests, unfortunately for the past year, past year and a half, I would say, in mainstream Western press, I've been reading reports about rising nationalism in Iran. And while as an Iranian-American, I would say this is a good thing, this rising nationalism was framed as impeding the ability of the Iranian people to organize against their government, and restraining them from critiquing their government about its foreign adventures. What you see with the protests in Iran now, and particularly the slogans, is that they're chiding the Islamic Republic of Iran for its foreign adventures, and they're saying that you are refusing to actually defend our national interests and our our rights, and instead are busy defending and exporting this universal message, a message which we, by the way, don't agree with.
0: So as we're talking now, we can figure that in the White House and the National Security Council um, and, uh, and the State Department, they're discussing what are we going to actually do? What are we, are we going to leave it at a rhetoric or are we going to take some serious actions?
2: What would you propose the U.S. government should do now? What's the next step? I think if we're serious, uh, there's going to have to be a tsunami of sanctions against the Revolutionary Guard Corps. Uh, which is the hinge of the clerical state. Um, I'm right now skeptical they're going to do that because uh, they fear that uh, the nuclear agreement could fall with those sanctions. And you think this, th- that
0: this White House and this State Department, and there may, there may be different answers to this question, do not want to see The end of the JCPOA? I mean,
2: that's an excellent question. Does the most important person, does the president of the United States want to see the end of the JCPOA? Um, I don't know. Certainly, rhetorically, uh, you know, he's opposed to it. He's got the worst deal in, in, in history. But whether when, you know, rubber hits the road, does he want to take the risks and be prepared to respond uh, to the Iranians if they were to walk away from the deal, if we, uh, for example, reintroduced uh, central bank sanctions, if we reintroduced uh, other fiscal restraints uh, on, the, on the Iranians, um, I don't know. I mean, it's an open question. I think most of his advisors are uncomfortable thinking about what we do after. Uh, whether the president is I mean we're going to find out because I think the Iranians the good guys and the bad guys uh, are going to force an answer to this question and they're going to do it in the not-too-distant future it is not true though that because
0: of the this uh, people taking place it is at least easier for the administration to say okay um, I'm not recertifying the agreement as I haven't but that doesn't terminate the agreement But I do want to see sanctions on the basis of human rights violations, support of terrorism, and missiles. We were always told by the Obama administration that sanctions were not off the table for those things, just for the nuclear portfolio. Doesn't it become easier for them to make the case we're imposing sanctions for other reasons? That could cause the Iranians to terminate the agreement
1: or to say the Americans have violated it, but but really they wouldn't have. Absolutely, I I think that is the case. There there is a a bit of nuance here that I think we should flesh out. and one is that there are, you know, even though in U.S. law, there is no legal distinction between nuclear and non-nuclear sanctions, there is a political overlay to U.S. sanctions and the U.S. sanctions architecture to force them to be nuclear and non-nuclear. So while we're talking about ballistic missile, human rights, terrorism, money laundering, these kind of sanctions, you know, the predicate for that need not be the protests in the street. The predicate has been, you know, almost 40 years of Iranian bad behavior. We have a lot to draw upon there so we can actually cite the example and levy the sanction. And the protest would be just the newest example and therefore would be met with the newest coercive U.S. financial tool. Um, There is no need to necessarily blow up the deal to save the Iranian people. Now, there are other discussions, of course, that we can have about how can we creatively take some of the financial measures that are called nuclear sanctions that actually have nothing to do with the nuclear program of Iran and reissue them under different authorities. Some would say this is cheating, some would say this is great. There there needs to be this kind of discussion. There needs to be this kind of creative lawyering about what kind of things we're waiving and under what auspices we are waiving. And what I would say is forcing that decision more so than the protests on the ground in Iran and more so than the behavior of the Iranian government is the waiver deadline. So that's why it's imperative that Congress actually uh, amend NARA and do it properly and not just water it down because Inara the problem- The Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act of 2015. Uh, This is the way, because the JCPOA nuclear deal is not a treaty, it's an executive agreement, an executive agreement between uh, six parties, actually, seven parties with Iran included this agreement actually is at the executive level. And so this piece of legislation was passed to enshrine the way the U.S. would be a party to a deal under, the US, under U.S. law. So if we're waiving sanctions, uh, we're just remaining a party to the deal.
2: I, I just have to say one thing there. I, it, whenever, whenever you feel like you're uh, engaging in a lawyerly conversation in Washington, <laughs> you're probably making a mistake. <laughs> uh, so fundamentally, the, the administration, that is the president, has to make up his mind. Uh, is he prepared to walk away from the JCPOA? Effectively, that's what he would be doing if he's introducing sector sanctions again, because the, the Iranians will certainly interpret that. They may not walk away, because particularly given how, I suspect, how weak the regime feels at this moment. But the American side has to say, am I prepared for that to happen with well, the Iranians uh, start Uh, you know, reconstructing centrifuges, reattaching them, rebuilding them, expanding them. Am I prepared to go whatever that next step is after they do that? So I think that is the question that fundamentally the administration, the president uh, has to ask and answer. And until they do that, You aren't probably going to have a terribly coherent Iran policy. So
0: my final question, would a coherent Iran policy at this point be based on the premise that we want to encourage those who want freedom in Iran, do things that that show that we support them, and raise the price for the regime's support of foreign ventures that amount to imperialism, uh, terrorism, and missile programs that Intend to develop missiles that will
2: carry the nuclear weapons they haven't yet developed. Should that that should that be the framework? Well, sure, absolutely. I mean, the administration itself, you know, quickly talks about rollback, uh, and I think rollback's entirely commendable. But when you ask what does that mean, and that's when it gets a little bit more abstract. So. Uh, We all use, uh, as the primary weapon here, sanctions, because sanctions allows you to default from other choices, get get you away from other choices. Uh, And that is the real litmus test. So if you're unprepared to use sanctions, then that tells you you're unprepared to do almost everything else. Right.
1: Well, go ahead. Last final word, Ben. There are certainly other theaters where sanctions, you know, need not apply. You, you know, ki- more kinetic actions or military force, I should say. Don't ever use b- to kinetic. To be clear, clear. Our, <laughs> to be clear for our <laughs> listeners <laughs> and well, <Royal, laughs> <laughs> uh, more, more military uh, uh, measures, such as in the Persian Gulf or intercepting Iranian arms transfers. You know, those don't necessarily require sanctions. Those just require U.S. resolve, you know. I've long said that, you know, Iran knows that the U.S. has the requisite capability. The outstanding question is always, do we have the requisite resolve? Well, the story has many
0: chapters yet to be written. Thank you, Ruel. Thank you, Benham. I hope to talk to you again very soon. Likewise. Thanks for listening with us to Episode 4 of Foreign Policy. You can find this episode and future episodes by subscribing on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can also listen via FTD's website, or by heading over to foreignpodicy.com. If you like the show, we'd love for you to leave us a review on iTunes or even shoot our production team an email directly at foreignpodicy at defenddemocracy.org to let us know how we're doing. We hope you'll join us again in the future. Until then, I'm Cliff May, and you're listening to Farm Podacy. See you next time.